Hey, do you like Kanye West? He's okay, I guess. Four days before the release of Yeezus, Kanye West held a listening party for his new album at Milk Studios in Los Angeles. It was here that he also premiered a short promotional film he made for the album. Well, the early work was a little too hip-hop for me in my case, but when Dark Twisted Fantasy came out in 2010, I think he really came into his own, both musically and lyrically. The two-minute film is a parody of one of the most infamous scenes from the film American Psycho. Kourtney Kardashian's then-boyfriend Scott Disick plays Christian Bale's character Patrick Bateman, a rich, materialistic investment banker who secretly lives a double life as a serial killer. Disick works himself up by talking about Yeezus and how it's misunderstood by the media. He then gruesomely slays Kim Kardashian's friend Jonathan Chaban with an axe. Hey, Jonathan! Justin Vernon, an artist who appears three times on Yeezus, said the American Psycho tribute perfectly captured Kanye's dedication to recreating film narratives in album form. Quote, I love that little American Psycho clip he did. It puts things into context, because Kanye feels like a director, and I don't think everything he's saying in songs is actually him saying it every time. It's like a movie, or a concept. On the song I'm In It, it seems like I'm playing a character in the song, but I'm not necessarily guiding who that character is. Kanye's editing creates the character, unquote. Throughout the course of Yeezus, the main character Kanye created experiences a daunting level of twists, turns, hardship, and heartache. And just like Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, Yeezus's rampant materialism and thirst for power reaches a breaking point during the story. And that breaking point is the song I'm In It. From Spotify, I'm Cole Kushner, and this is Dissect, long-form musical analysis broken into short, digestible episodes. Today, we continue our serialized examination of Kanye West Yeezus with its sixth song, I'm In It. In our last few episodes, we dissected the songs New Slaves and Hold My Liquor, which represent the end of the album's first act and the beginning of its second. New Slaves documented Yeezus's failed attempt at sparking a political rebellion, and at the end of the track, we heard a pivotal plot point sung in Hungarian. It was here that Yeezus was described as a sun too tired to shine, and foreshadowed that a mysterious woman would appear to resurrect our hero. This signals a transition into Act 2 where we'll witness Yeezus in a series of interactions with women, each of them revealing a new layer in our protagonist. Hold My Liquor found a defeated and drunken Yeezus returning to an ex-girlfriend, believing that if he slept with her just one more time, he could own her. Though his outward intention was crude, we viewed his actions as an attempt to find some form of deeper connection than the fleeting, superficial hookups that have defined his celebrity life. I'm hanging on a hangover Five years we've been over this sudden turn from the bravado and indulgence of the album's first few songs follows the critical blow to his ego that was New Slaves. There are limits to his celebrity. He's not as godly as he imagined, and it's caused him to retreat from the public stage that so empowered, beguiled, and infuriated him. But halfway through Kanye's lone Hold My Liquor verse, the ex-girlfriend's aunt entered the picture. 
While Yeezus wears a mask that displays power and masculinity, the aunt sees through his disguise. She's already witnessed this relationship fall apart once and cautioned her niece not to fall into his trap for a second time. While Hold My Liquor saw Yeezus fail to rekindle things with his ex, I'm In It finds our hero in much more successful circumstances, at least on the surface. This keeps in line with the sixth part of the hero's journey, overcoming temptation. In each episode so far, we've framed the narrative of Yeezus using the framework of this classic storytelling formula. We've already witnessed Yeezus live out the first handful of parts in this journey, as we were introduced to our hero and his ordinary world indulging in celebrity life. He was then called to adventure by attempting a political rebellion, which ultimately failed, transforming his external battle into an internal one. We viewed Hold My Liquor as corresponding to part five of the hero's journey, the road of trials. It was here Yeezus had to confront his past, his ego, his vulnerability, the sharp criticism of others, and ultimately rejection. Part six of the hero's journey is defined by temptation that typically appeals to one of the hero's biggest flaws, putting their journey or quest in jeopardy. We know that one of Yeezus' fatal flaws is serving his ego, which we've seen expressed in his attempts to conquer women sexually. And that temptation to indulge his ego through sex reappears in a big way in the album's next track, a song drenched in both lyrical and musical eroticism, I'm In It. Damn, your lips very soft As I turn my blackberry off And I turn your bathwater on I'm In It was produced by Kanye West, Evan Christ, and Dom Solo, with additional production by Noah Goldstein, Arca, and Mike Dean. From a musical standpoint, the song is one of the more intricate, unpredictable tracks in Kanye's entire catalog, as it features a vast dynamic range, multiple tempos and rhythmic variations, and surprising sound sources. The first few minutes of the track are essentially one big buildup, which eventually explodes into the song's hook, a fitting climactic structure in a song all about sex. Despite its relative minimalism in terms of instruments used, this introduction is actually pretty interesting rhythmically. The song is in a standard 4-4 time signature, yet there's a kind of disorienting push-pull, stop-and-go effect to the track. It's actually pretty cool how they did this, so I want to break it down for you. In the first measure, the main instrument, that huge bass drum, plays on the first downbeat, and the snare drum plays on the third beat. As I play the excerpt, pay attention to how the bass and snare fall on beats 1 and 3. One, two, three, four. All right, so far so good. That's as basic of a drum pattern as you can have. Where things get interesting is in the next measure. Hearing this basic beat, our ears are trained to hear the same basic pattern repeat in the next measure. But that's not what happens. Instead, the bass drum skips the first beat altogether and this time plays on beat two. One, two, three, four. Notice that the snare drum plays on beat three again, just like the first measure. But now the bass drum is closer to the snare hit, so it almost feels like the song is speeding up. Now adding to this rhythmic variation is the placement of the two sampled sexual moans also heard in this intro. In the first measure, the first moan is played in between beats one and two, and the second moan is played on beat three with the snare drum. 
Now the second time around, the first moan plays on the downbeat of one. So the combined effect of not hearing the bass drum and instead hearing the moan is disorienting. I know some of this technical stuff might not make sense to everyone, but really what I'm trying to point out is how a few small tweaks to the placement of these few instruments creates a feeling of rhythmic instability, something that will sustain throughout the entire track. Damn, your lips very soft. As I turn my black baby off. And I turn your bathwater on. And you turn off your iPhone. Kelly's whispers, I fucking biting ass. Neck is hand, legs, eating ass. Your pussy's too good, I need to crash. Your titties, let them out, free your last. Thank God Almighty, they free your last. We was up at After failing to reconnect with an old lever on the previous track, Yeezus here and I'm in it seems to be recoiling from the vulnerability he showed with his ex. He rediscovers his sense of power and dominance through a new woman. And instead of denying Yeezus, this woman commits to his physical desires. The opening sex scene starts with the line, damn your lips very soft. This could seemingly refer to kissing, but knowing Yeezus, it likely has much more graphic implications. He then sets the scene saying, as I turn my Blackberry off and I turn your bath water on and you turn off your iPhone. By turning off their phones, Yeezus and this woman have shut themselves off from the world. They're only focused on one another for what is about to be an incredibly intense, carnal experience. If we're viewing this song as part of the overcoming temptation stage of the hero's journey, these lines about cutting off the outside world are pretty fitting. As written by the hero's journey expert Joseph Campbell, a woman that typically appears at this stage during the adventure is often a metaphor for, quote, the physical or material temptations of life since the hero was often tempted by lust from his spiritual journey. Clearly, Jesus has become incredibly distracted from his journey. The only thing on his mind now is physical pleasure, as he describes the increasingly intense foreplay as the phones go off and the tub fills with water. Next, we get the first of a few controversial lines in the track. He says, Your pussy's too good, I need to crash. Your titties, let him out, free at last. Thank God Almighty, they free at last. This latter line is an interpolation of the emphatic conclusion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s famed I Have a Dream speech, which itself interpolates a classic African-American spiritual. Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty. Some may wonder why Kanye would take something as noble as a spiritual, as historically important as Dr. King's speech, and render them into something baseless and sexual. It could be he's simply being provocative just to be provocative. But in terms of the album's narrative, we have to remember that what happens on a song is within the context of all the preceding songs, the same way that what happens on page 100 in a book is in context with pages 1 through 99. With that in mind, the interpolation gains dimension. Recall that this isn't Kanye's first reference to slavery or the civil rights era on Yeezus. In Black Skinhead, we had a reference to Malcolm X and his by any means necessary ideology. In New Slaves, Kanye referenced Jim Crow segregation, the enslaved picking cotton, and the poem Strange Fruit about the horrific lynching of African Americans in the South. Every time these historical references occurred, they've been used to contextualize contemporary injustices Jesus sees as continuations of the centuries of oppression black people have endured. And Jesus believes himself to be the modern Malcolm X, ready to lead a revolution by any means necessary. 
And while both black skinhead and new slaves found Jesus attempting to channel that spirit and rail against racial injustice, his efforts amounted to nothing at the end of new slaves. Jesus feels defeated and retreats into drug use. And that's when the omniscient narrator reveals that Jesus has become a sun too tired to shine and has entered a period of darkness. Hold my liquor and I'm in it are expressions of that darkness. And so in terms of the album's narrative and character development, Jesus seems incapable of balancing the leadership qualities of Dr. King and Malcolm X with his deepest, darkest, wainton desires. When challenged, when pressed, he succumbs to temptation, to vice, which explains the language here in I'm in it. In his attempt to find emotional catharsis, Jesus begins to conflate his political aspirations with this sexual encounter. And that's why the free at last reference lacks the social meaning of black skinhead and new slaves. Jesus is currently in a superficial place where he himself lacks depth and perspective. Instead of creating actual societal change, he's substituting the release he would have found with that macro catharsis with this far more limited and fleeting sexual encounter. It's why something as beautiful as the sentiment free at last has been reduced to a reference to breasts. The contrast is important. It serves as a benchmark for just how far our hero has fallen. It shows us that Jesus has become just like the people he criticized on Black Skinhead and New Slaves, the people who weren't doing enough. Careful listeners of this part of the song will notice that a sample comes into the background when Kanye says, Thank God Almighty, they free at last. This sample is taken from a 1991 song called Lately by R&B singer Kenny Lattimore. Is this just a dream? On the surface, the sampled phrase, a dream we hear in I'm in it, corresponds to Connie's interpolation of King's I Had a Dream speech. But as we discussed in previous episodes, Connie seems to choose samples from songs that add subtext, that help build out the intended themes and topics addressed in the song. With this in mind, we turn to the lyrics of the sampled song lately, which is a soulful ballad that balances romantic longing and euphemistic sensuality. Not unlike I'm In It, the song begins with descriptions of a woman. Dark skin, short hair, legs seem to go on forever. But soon into the song, we realize that Lattimore is singing about a dream he's having about this woman, not an actual encounter. He sings, Lately, I've been seeing your face in my dreams. Are you dreaming about me? It's interesting that Kanye chose not to sample King Jr.'s speech directly, but instead clips out a dream from Lattimore's song about desire. In the same way he reduced King's free at last quote to a sexual description, Kanye's chosen a sample that nods to King's I Have a Dream speech, but it's actually taken from a song that's dreaming about a woman, not revolution. It's another example of a sample adding additional context to the track's subject matter, as our hero's aspirations become more and more warped by temptation. Jesus continues the verse, We was up at the party, but we was leaving fast. This flashback describes how Jesus and this woman came to be in the bathroom, turning off their phones. They had been at a party and fled because their carnal attraction was so strong. He then describes stopping to get condoms under the guise of needing gas, which is a random, somewhat comedic detail, but it does also show that Jesus has a one-track mind. We then get a line that's extremely revealing. He says, Chasing love, all the bittersweet hours lost. <laughs> 
Coming after a line about the two at a party, this line reveals the underlying intentions of either the woman, of Jesus, or the both of them. They are searching for love, chasing love. He then reflects on all this time spent searching for love, which he describes as bittersweet, meaning while he had some good moments in the hunt, he's ultimately failed at finding love. This is a moment of vulnerability, but as we know, Jesus is uncomfortable with such emotion, which is why every time he's expressed vulnerability, it's undercut by a counter display of crude, uncaring ego. Hence, we get the next line, one of the crudest lines of the entire album. A line I know you have all been waiting for me to recite all season. Eating a sweet and sour sauce. Obviously, the line is intentionally provocative, ignorant to the point of comedy. But again, we have to view it within the context of the line that came before it, which is one of the most insightful and revealing on the entire album. When looking for love, Jesus feels he's wasted hours because true love is hard to find. If it was easy, it wouldn't be so special. But for someone as egotistical as Jesus, the difficulty is too much. He wants everything on sight. So he's come to feel that it's better to spend his time having sex than trying to form a stable, healthy relationship. Sex is easy. All you need is sweet and sour sauce, so to speak. Following Kanye's verse, the track gives way to Jamaican artist Assassin. Just like a sample source, we should be attentive to how a guest featured is used in the song. Like Justin Vernon alluded to in the top of this episode, Kanye likes to use his guests as larger narrators or characters in his albums. Recall that on Hold My Liquor, Kanye used Vernon to serve as essentially the angel on Yeezus' shoulder, while trap rapper Chief Keef was positioned as the devil on the other shoulder. They represented the war between vulnerability and ego that defines the album's second act. These same roles hold true for every featured artist on I'm In It, as well as the upcoming songs Blood on the Leaves, Guilt Trip, Send It Up, and Bound 2. The featured artist is either the angel or the devil. With this in mind, let's hear what Assassin has to say. This is the second of four times Kanye has used a Jamaican artist on Yeezus. Producer Noah Goldstein said of these artists, quote, Kanye figured out all those reggae voices on the album. Everything is him, to be real. Regardless of who additionally produced things, it's his curation. And this idea that he's not as hands-on in the studio now is bullshit. He's the consummate producer, unquote. The foundation for the album's Jamaican thread was laid all the way back on the second track, Black Skinhead. As we covered there, the term skinhead was originally used to describe a 1960s British working-class subculture that drew inspiration from Jamaican fashion and music, which would go on to heavily inspire the punk rock scene. We hear Yeezus capturing that punk mentality in the album's opening act. The first actual feature of a Jamaican artist came on I Am A God, where Kanye sampled the artist Capleton. Capleton was an important artist of the Rastafarian movement in Jamaica. Rastas have their own specific interpretation of the Bible, a belief in a single God known as Yah, who partially resides in each individual, a relevant connection given Jesus' declaration of divinity on the track. But then there's the actual words Capleton is saying on the song, which describes taking a woman out of a skimpy, bougie red dress and putting her in something more conservative so she can say no to X-rated. It was something we heard as commentary on the lifestyle of Jesus that a change of clothes, i.e. a change in his view of women, was needed to find something more meaningful in his life. In this way, Capleton, as a featured artist, embodied the angel on the shoulder of Jesus. 
but now here on I'm In It, Jesus is embracing X-rated, and as a featured artist, Assassin embodies the devil on the other shoulder. What Assassin raps on the track roughly translates to, that's all they can do, say what, that's all they can do, we deal with action, just a bad man thing to do, action is a bad man thing. Assassin here contrasts himself with others. Others can only quote, say what? In other words, they're all talk, where Assassin is all about action, because that is, according to him, what a real man is about. But that's the irony here. Yeezus isn't adhering to the punk rock skinhead attitudes he's so clearly embraced on the first few tracks of the album. He's fallen victim to his desires, his own vices, his temptations. He only wants to appear to embody those bad man things, when really it's a front, a persona he feels he needs to display in order to retain his image as an authoritative figure. It's pure ego. Assassin's final words in this section cascade with echoes as the music behind him suddenly drops out. Then there's a brief moment of near silence before the beat comes blazing back in. There's actually a technical function to the silence we heard here. When the beat comes back in, the track is suddenly faster. The song began at 88 beats per minute, and now it jumps up to 124 beats per minute, which is a pretty significant leap. This kind of tempo change is pretty rare in hip-hop, or popular music in general, and it adds to the disjarring, offset rhythm of the song we outlined at the top of the episode. The tempo change is also why we get that bit of silence. It momentarily suspends our perception of a pulse, which makes the tempo change work without totally disjarring us to the point of confusion. For comparison's sake, here's how the tempo change would sound without this bit of silence. And now here's what the faster section would sound like if the song simply stayed in its original tempo. This quote-unquote new section is almost identical to what came before it. Only one additional sonic element is added, which we'll talk about in a second. But overall, it's the change of tempo that makes this part feel much different than before. It's almost as if the song took an amphetamine, as the tempo of the song is in essence its heartbeat. There's a kind of skittish, out-of-control quality to this sudden shift as Jesus continues to ramp up his ego and express that ego sexually. And to this point, take a careful listen to the background of this sped up section. Yes, that's a barking dog being used as a snare drum. Recall that the song began with sexual moans used rhythmically and now those moans have been replaced with an aggressive dog bark. In this way, the two sounds are sonically and thematically bonded, representative of how Jesus' aggressive ego is bonded with his sexual desire. They are two sides of the same coin. And as the song continues, both the sex and the ego is going to intensify, matching the new intensity of the song's tempo. Okay, 
Assassin here raps, you know I'm a bad man, disrespect me and we won't talk, no way Jose, try that on February 30th, that's right, there's no day to try it. Of course, February only has 28 days, so Assassin's saying there's never a day you can disrespect him and not have to pay the price. This wildly confident commentary is once again purely a display of ego. Much like Chief Keefe's counter to Justin Vernon on Hold My Liquor, Assassin's puffed out chest captures the attitude Yeezus believes he needs to display after being denied by his ex and failing on new slaves. This reaches a boiling point with Assassin's next lines. When we roll round to your block, don't bother thinking we won't spray like an aerosol can. We will smile on court day because we beat the murder charge like OJ. Assassin here arrogantly claims he'll shoot any naysayer in a drive-by and smile in court after this murder, knowing he has the money to hire a lawyer good enough to get him off. It's the pinnacle of machismo, and it builds right into the song's first hook, some a minute and a half into the track. Just as the song reaches its peak sonically, Yeezus himself also peaks, repeating, I'm in it, literally telling us that he's inside this woman now after the foreplay described in the verse. Similar to the sexual moans in The Barking Dog, this sexual description following just after Assassin's threat of murder again bond the two acts together as the literal climax of ego and orgasm. But just like Hold My Liquor, both Assassin's and Kanye's machismo is juxtaposed with vulnerability provided by Justin Vernon. He punctuates each one of Kanye's superficial lines with lines with far more substance. He sings, Should have known I would fall, stepping on cracks in the floor. While these lines might have felt out of place if this were a standalone track, we know that within the context of the album, this sexual escapade is a low moment for Yeezus, a regression, quote-unquote fall as Vernon sings. Stepping on cracks in the floor seems to play off the childhood game, step on a crack, break your mother's back which in this context seems to mean if you are able to control yourself, bad things will happen. Obviously, Yeezus is out of control, stepping on all the proverbial cracks, and there will be much backlash to come as a result of his bad decisions. Vernon continues with the lines, and your boy's at the door. Well, you need to fight for your own. Then don't let me at your table. If you're just going to lay there, fist jumps into the air. You love flame wars. I'll be long gone. These lines are pretty cryptic, but what seems clear is that some kind of conflict has broken out between the man and woman. The boys at the door could be this woman's kids, an interpretation that seems to tie into some of the lines we'll hear in the song's outro. The appearance of these kids leads to an awkward moment, where she's describing just laying there as she's lost interest in what seems to be an affair. We get the imagery of fists in the air and flame wars, which describes a lengthy exchange of angry or abusive messages. It's possible this is depicting a text exchange between the two after the man left. Surprisingly, the section ends with Vernon bringing the scene back around to sex. I'll be long gone, grab that ass, shed your clothes. It seems most likely Vernon here is depicting the man moving on to the next woman to fulfill his sexual needs after leaving the woman with kids. Whatever the case may be, these lines begin another thread of sexual descriptions, a thread Kanye picks up in his next extremely explicit verse. That's right after the break. Welcome back to Dissect. 
Before the break, we heard I'm in it ramp up in tempo and aggression, as Assassin and Yeezus display the pinnacle of machismo and misogyny. As the song continues, so too does Kanye's explicit sexual descriptions. Picked up where we left off. Uh, I need you home when I get off. Uh, you know I need that wet mouth. Uh, I know you need that reptile. Uh, she cut from a different textile. Uh, she loved different kind of sex now. Uh, black girls sipping white. The first thing we notice about this verse is the effect the tempo change has on Kanye's delivery. Despite his flow being the same as the beginning of the song, he's now rapping that flow at a faster tempo, which comparatively makes it feel more intense, matching the growing intensity of the sexual escapade. Connie also now begins each of these explicit lines by repeating, uh, a rhythmic grunt that underscores the sexual nature of what's being said, as it mimics the act in question. The first line, picked up where we left off, is a callback to the end of the previous verse where Kanye said, tell your boss you need an extra hour off. At some point, the girl had to leave for work, and here they are now picking up where they left off. Jesus continues, I need you home when I get off. Of course, to get off is a euphemism for an orgasm so he's saying he needs her there to get him off as soon as he gets off work. Next, we get the lines, you know I need that wet mouth, I know you need that reptile. On the surface, reptile is being used here as a euphemism for his wang. But her needing that reptile also seems tied to her desire for material goods as exchange for sex, as real reptile skin purses and bags are popular in high-fashion couture and command tens of thousands of dollars. Additional evidence for this interpretation comes in the next line, which continues this fashion thread. She cut from a different textile. It's a play on the phrase cut from a different cloth, which is a counter to the idiom cut from the same cloth. The girl in question, cut as she is from a different cloth, would be a contrast to others, likely referring to her superior physical beauty. Using the specific word textile is a meaningful change from the standard idiom, as it has more formal and professional connotation that relates specifically to the fashion industry. Just like Jesus is relaying his failed political ambitions through this sexual experience, we now see him doing the same with his yearning to be a part of the fashion world. The implication of the textile word choice could be that the woman is dressed differently than she was before because Jesus is buying her expensive clothes. This would explain the next line, which is, she loved different kinds of sex now. Because Jesus has now spent money on this woman, her sexual daring has increased in exchange. In effect, his fashion aspirations are temporarily satisfied through this woman. While he couldn't create macro change, he feels accomplished in this moment. He gives in to the temptation that dressing her and her alone is enough. This transactional nature of sex calls back to on-site and the behavior Jesus displayed there in the house of sin. Women there were looking to latch onto Jesus in order to reach the top of the mountain, and Jesus was using these women for sex. All progress we've seen from our hero since then has been rendered meaningless, since he's regressed to his old ways after his revolutionary ambitions failed. This thread continues as we find Yeezus indulging deeper and deeper into sexual temptation. Uh, she cut from a different textile. Uh, she loved different kind of sex now. Uh, black girl sipping white wine. Put my fist in her like a civil rights sign. And grabbed it with a slight grind. And held it to the right time. Then she came like, ah! That's why I'm Yeezus continues, black girl sipping white wine. At first, this may seem like an image of refinement, as wine is typically associated with wealth. But sexual imagery and energy overflows on I'm in it, so white wine could very well be a coded way of referring to the liquid emitting from its aforementioned reptile. As if to confirm the X-rated intentions of the line, Connie jumps right back to a more purely provocative image to close out the verse, 
He says, put my fist in her like a civil rights sign. The line pays off on the black girl and white wine we just heard, as the civil rights movement was an attempt to equalize black and white Americans. But the line, like many in this song, is obviously and intentionally provocative. It's one that's been called out for both its salacious details and the impudence Kanye had to associate the civil rights era with such a pornographic act. Billboard wrote, quote, But this line comparing the sexual practice of fisting to the black power fist John Carlos and Tommy Smith raised in 1968? That's just wrong, man. Unquote. And fair enough. I'm definitely not here to convince anyone out of their opinions about this line, or any others for that matter. But given that we have chosen to dissect Yeezus as a narrative work, as a character study of sorts, we again have to analyze the line within the context of the story, as this is yet another lyrical reference to the civil rights era we find on the album. Specifically, the fist as an emblem of black power grew out of a movement by the same name. The term dates back to Frederick Douglass in the 1850s, but coalesced in the civil rights era as a more active response to the nonviolence and desegregation popularized by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. For a time, Malcolm X represented the face of black power. Eventually, the clenched fist became a symbol of solidarity and a salute amongst individuals who supported the movement. The most enduring image of the raised fist in relation to the civil rights era came by way of the 1968 Olympics, when black athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos both raised their fists while on the winner's podium. This occurred several months after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Following the gesture, both men were suspended from the Olympics, but the gesture has since become heralded as one of the more influential images and symbolic acts of the civil rights era. The importance and rich historical context of the raised fist thus renders the raised fist a by-minute as an incredibly hollow moment. Jesus likely believes this action to be explosive and powerful. After all, it results in an orgasm for the woman. But this is the same man who fancied himself a new Malcolm X, who had wanted to lead a 21st century equivalent to the civil rights movement. The reality is, Jesus has utterly debased himself. His moment of salute is not century-defining. It's useless, trivial, irrelevant. It is absolutely the rock-bottom moment for our hero. In this context, the impact of the line is due to how ugly it is and what that ugliness says about who Jesus has become. Despite the initial shock value and the seeming randomness of the reference, the line pays off on not only the album's repeated callbacks to black history, but also its main character's struggle to reconcile the achievements of that history with the continued adversity, obstruction, and hazards he must deal with. That's why I'm in it and I can't get out of That's why I'm in it and I can't get out of in this repetition of the hook, Assassin now joins with Kanye and Vernon. And interestingly, Kanye now doesn't just say, I'm in it, but he tacks on, and I can't get out. In other words, he's become a prisoner to temptation. Meanwhile, you have Assassin reasserting his condescending and bragging persona, and Vernon punctuates the chorus with his previous line, I'll be long gone, grab that ass, shed your clothes. This is internal chaos. Up to this point, Jesus has oscillated between ego and vulnerability, but now the two join in a vortex that pulls him even deeper into a hellscape of his own making. His vulnerability leaves him desperate for even the shallowest of relationships. His ego drives him to spend, to fuck, to spend to fuck, all so he could feel like a star. It's a recipe for disaster.
Somewhat abruptly, we get another shift in the song's production, as we find ourselves in an empty space filled with only an ambient synthesizer and Justin Vernon's lone voice. It's also the first time we get harmony in the song, as the synth plays a sequence of lush chords. I'm going to play the chords in Vernon's melody on piano, because stripped of its context, I think it shows just how beautiful this section is, which is strange in a song as graphic and aggressive as this one has been up until this point. This part is such a big contrast from everything else in the song. And unsurprisingly, the musical shift is matched lyrically, as Vernon expresses vulnerability, singing, Say you long for me, for you. Lay it off with all your rules. If Vernon is indeed playing the angel on his shoulder, this reveals that Jesus just wants to be wanted. And it seems the woman has rules that set boundaries around their relationship, keeping it strictly transactional. This then leads to the next lines, where Vernon sings Starfucker three times. She isn't sleeping with Jesus because she cares about him. She's sleeping with him because she's a starfucker. She wants the clout. She wants the benefits. She wants to feel like she's at the top of the mountain. Ironically, the same can be also said of Jesus, as he props up his ego through sex and dominance to feel like a star, so to speak. And that makes Vernon's final line really hit. He sings, who, where and as if to accent this lost and abandoned feeling, the music behind him drops out entirely. It's just him alone, calling into the void. As we've talked about, Jesus is in a low place after being denied by his ex on Hold My Liquor. Thus he retreats to the woman on this song in order to find some sort of emotional catharsis. We see him trying to mend his political and romantic failings through this woman, Yet, because of his crippled state, he's incapable of making this encounter anything more than physical and lustful. She's a false hope, a temptation that distracts him from the fact that he's lost his way. And clearly, she's not the savior who was foreshadowed at the end of New Slaves. And thus, we get Vernon's final line, who, where, and the search continues. This lonely inquisition would make a natural ending to the song, a natural come down after the adrenaline of the orgasmic climax of sexual energy. But the song takes yet another unexpected turn, something Kanye addresses directly in his first words back on the track. Time to take it too far now. Uh, Michael Douglas out the car now. Uh, got the kids and the wife life. Uh, but can't wake up from the nightlife. Uh, I'm so scared of my demons. Uh, I go to sleep with a nightlight. Uh, my mind moves like a trombike. Kanye begins the outro, Time to Take It Too Far Now. Given the explicitness of the song up until this point, we wonder how much farther he could go. It's a notion that speaks to our hero's inability to indulge responsibly. As we know from Black Skinhead, instead of keeping it 100, he keeps it 500 and out of control. He continues rapping, Michael Douglas out the car now. This is a reference to fame actor Michael Douglas's starring role in the movie Falling Down. Douglas there plays William Foster, a man whose life has not gone well. He's lost his job as a defense engineer for the U.S. government. His wife left him and all he wants to do is go to his daughter's birthday party. While all these frustrations boil on the inside, Foster appears run-of-the-mill. 
He's dressed in the typical white button-down shirt tucked into slacks. He wears a tie, glasses, dress shoes, and carries a briefcase. In the film's opening scene, Foster sits in standstill traffic, sweating and breathing deeply. The camera roves over the other cars. Kids scream in one. Men shout in the other. There's relentless honking, annoying bumper stickers. And worst of all, Foster's air conditioning isn't working. The editing cycles through shots of all these elements, quickening to the point of crescendo that symbolizes Foster's own psyche. Overwhelmed, Foster abandons his car, signaling the line from the song, Michael Douglas out the car now. From here, he becomes more militant and psychotic, but it's not exactly who he confronts so much as what. He's constantly upset with aspects of society and challenges the people who just followed the system. For example, a fast food restaurant won't serve him breakfast because it's 11.34 a.m. instead of 11.30. He bullies a construction worker into admitting a street is under construction for no other reason to justify an inflated budget. He yells at rich guys golfing that the golf course should be a public place rather than a private one. There's a sense that Foster has played by the system's faulty rules all his life, and he can no longer take it. He's reached his breaking point, and by the film's end, he kills multiple people and blows up a construction site with a rocket launcher. Connie the storyteller is drawing a parallel between Yeezus and this character. Yeezus railed against societal injustices that seemed to plague only him, while others were more willing to accept their roles as new slaves. It also recalls the American Psycho short we discussed at the top of this episode, as that film centers around a typically wealthy Wall Street worker who snaps and becomes a delusional, psychotic killer that murders women after he sleeps with them. It's troubling to realize that Yeezus is being compared to these characters who have reached a breaking point. He was described as a sun too tired to shine, and now we worry where this darkness is taking him. The next lines continue to capture that distraught internal landscape. Got the kids and the wife life, but can't wake up from the nightlife. Typically when someone has a family, they give up partying. The two lifestyles are inherently at odds with one another. Doing both creates an unsustainable situation. This speaks to Yeezus' own inability to balance romance with the celebrity life, two contradictory forces that are like Michael Douglas, destined to combust. It might also describe the woman he's sleeping with on the track, as there were, quote, boys at the door that seemed to trigger tension between the two. The inevitable breaking points alluded to in these opening lines then gives way to a shocking moment of admission. He raps, I'm so scared of my demons, I go to sleep with a nightlight. Kids often use nightlights because they're scared of the dark, imagining ghosts or monsters that aren't real. But the demons that plague adults can be all too real. Bad habits and a problematic mindset can create negative feedback loops that keep someone in a state of duress. In context of I Minute, a song that on its surface is mostly about sexual descriptions, we should recognize this moment and omission as extremely revealing, a blatant acknowledgement of the underlying pain and baggage that cause our hero to succumb to and find escape in temptation, be it sexual, drug-induced, or both simultaneously. It also furthers our worries about the mental state of Jesus, who under his mask of ego and machismo, is revealing himself to be closer and closer to his breaking point, as he's unable to find release or catharsis through indulgence like he used to. Of course, after a line as vulnerable as this, we should expect Jesus to counter this admission with ego which is exactly what happens as the verse continues. Uh, I go to sleep with a nightlight, uh, my mind move like a trombike, uh, Papa Willie on the zeitgeist, uh, I'm finna start a new movement, uh, being led by the drums, uh, I'm a rap lick priest, uh, getting hit by the nuns, uh. Jesus declares, my mind move like a trombike, Papa Willie on the zeitgeist. 
Tron was a science fiction movie from 1982, one that Kanye said, quote, he grew up on. The movie's protagonist, Flynn, is a game designer and hacker who ends up digitized into a computer mainframe. What he finds is a world of living programs enslaved by the mighty Master Control Program. Flynn's hacking skills give him a power that rivals the Master Control Program, and he leads a rebellion that frees the subjects of the virtual world. Tron is, essentially, what Yeezus hoped to accomplish on New Slaves. He wanted to, as Kanye says in the next line, pop a wheelie on the zeitgeist. Popping a wheelie is, of course, a flashy move performed on a bike and relates to the aforementioned Tron bike, while zeitgeist refers to the mood of a culture. By freeing people of mental slavery, Yeezus was trying to have the same impact on the zeitgeist of modern America as Flynn had in Tron. That explains the next line, I must start a new movement being led by the drums. Drums cause people to move, so it's through music Yeezus imagines he would create change. As the preacher of this movement created through hip-hop, he refers to himself in the next line as a quote, Raplik priest. Raplik, of course, plays on the term Catholic, except where Catholic priests are celibate, in the religion of Yeezus, getting head by the nuns is celebrated. What Connie just described was Jesus' vision of what could have been, but what follows is the reality. Connie begins the final lines of the song with, They don't play what I'm playing, they don't see what I'm saying. Jesus' revolution can't come to pass because of the disconnect he feels with everyone else. A disconnect he summarizes in the final two lines. They don't play what he's playing because everyone else is balling in the D-League, and they don't see what he's saying because he's speaking Swagheely. The D-League was a development league for the NBA, the level just below professionals. So these people aren't on the level of a Yeezus. Meanwhile, Swagheely is a combination of the notion of swag mixed with the African language of Swahili. This made-up word actually recalls a line from one of Kanye's most beloved songs, Gorgeous, from the album My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. It's hip-hop, just a euphemism for a new religion. The soul music of the slaves that the youth is missing. But this is more than... Kanye starts this verse with a question. Is hip-hop just a euphemism for a new religion? After being crucified by the public after the VMAs, Kanye realizes there's a weight to his words. His words can create change. Thus, that line from Gorgeous feels prophetic, significant, necessary. Kanye isn't just making rap songs for the radio. He has the power to lead people. In turn, the album Yeezus seems like the logical next step after that realization. In Black Skinhead and New Slaves, we saw Yeezus try to jumpstart a revolution, to get his people inspired, to make everyone as angry about this cyclical oppression as he is. On I Am A God, he's quite literally infused with the power of God to carry out God's word. Now, however, he's not only representing a new religion, but speaking an entirely different language. As Armin White describes in his article, Swagheely, Learn It, Know It, Live It, Quote, this line marvelously compresses old-fashioned Afrocentricity into the new audacity of shot-collar triumph and skepticism, an unbounded language Kanye dares all of us to recognize, unquote. Swag Healy isn't just a language, but a way of life. According to White, as a black man, you aren't just oozing braggadocio for superficial reasons. You do it because you're challenging the status quo. You're showing you have confidence and power in a society that's tried to strip all power from your people since the second they landed on American shores. But of course, in the hands of Yeezus, power and confidence are taken too far, to the point of alienation. That's why no one's seeing what he's saying. Much like Kanye's detachment from the public on My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, 
the Yeezus character seems incapable of relaying his inspirational message to the masses because of his polarizing demeanor. And as we've seen over and over on Yeezus, from the people he tries to lead to the women he tries to form a connection with, the one thing that makes our hero so special is also the one thing that disconnects him from everyone else. Conclusions On the surface, the title I'm in it is a euphemism for sex. But as we discovered by the end of the song, the title has much larger implications about Yeezus as a character, his mental health, his political aspirations, and his inability to find emotional catharsis through another woman. Part of Yeezus wanted to reform the relationship with his ex on Hold My Liquor, seeking some form of depth and affection that's been missing from his life. But as we saw in that track, Yeezus was too arrogant and demanding to make the relationship work. He is seemingly incapable of balancing his egotistical side with his vulnerable side, which is why he leans so heavily into his domineering tendencies on I'm In It. But these tendencies eroded as the song progressed, and by its end, we're hearing about the internal demons that haunt Yeezus to the point of sleeping like a vulnerable child with a nightlight on. And so what began as an explicit song about sex ends with the revelation that Yeezus has become a prisoner to his unrealized ambitions, which is why the song's refrain ultimately becomes, I'm in it and I can't get out. Like Michael Douglas and American Psycho, our unstable protagonist is beginning to boil over, trapped by a lifestyle he's not able to escape on his own. Thus we recall the mysterious woman that the omniscient narrator speaks of at the end of New Slaves, the shining light our hero needs. This woman couldn't possibly be the woman from Hold My Liquor or the woman from I'm In It, but instead an ideal woman who allows Yeezus to find the emotional catharsis he seeks. Yeezus has been attempting to force that catharsis, crudely and clumsily, while each of these women provides a key to unlocking his full potential on his road of trials, neither possess the love he needs to complete his heroic journey. I just need to clear my mind now. It's been racing since the summertime. Freeze. Now I'm holding down the summer now. Freeze. And all I want is what I can't buy now. Jesus's punch drunk search for the one continues with the album's next track, Blood on the Leaves. An epic, emotional journey will examine note by note line by line, next time on Dissect. Today's episode was written by Travis Beam, Chris Lambert, and me. If you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about the new season or share on social media. It really helps. Theme music by Bureaucratic. Audio editing by Eric Bass and me. Song recreations by Andrew Atwood. Be sure to follow us on social media at Dissect Podcast and check out our limited season eight merchandise on our website, dissectpodcast.com. If you want even more episodes on Kanye, listen to season two of this podcast, a 16 episode analysis of my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. All right, thanks everyone. Talk to you next time.